Hello, and welcome to episode 42 of the Movie Marathoners podcast. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me today in a little bit is the host of the Movies After Work podcast, Thomas Green. Due to some unforeseen complications, Tom was not able to catch the first film that we were going to review. So what I'll be doing is I'll be doing the first half of the episode solo, and then Tom will hop in at the halfway point. Uh, Tom was on the podcast back in January when we reviewed Sam Mendes' 1917. Uh, He's a brilliant and genuinely nice guy, so I'm really excited to get to talk to him again. If you aren't following him or listening to his podcast, fix that. You can follow the Movies After Work podcast on Twitter at Movies Work. And with that, uh, let's get into it. So this week, I'll be running through a review of Gavin O'Connor's most recent film, The Way Back, which after a short theatrical run thanks to the COVID-19 virus is now available for purchase on demand. So I'll keep things spoiler-free for that one, and then after that, Tom is going to hop on to help me review another one of Gavin O'Connor's films from 2011, Warrior, and that's currently streaming on Hulu, so you can check that out at your leisure. For Warrior, we'll do a non-spoiler and a spoiler section, and then as usual, we'll round out the episode with our point two section where we discuss what else we've been watching. So first, let's read a synopsis of The Way Back. Jack Cunningham was a high school basketball phenom who walked away from the game, forfeiting his future. Years later, when he reluctantly accepts a coaching job at his alma mater, he may get one last shot at redemption. The film stars Ben Affleck, Al Madrigal, and Janina Gavankar. It is written by Brad Inglesby and is directed by Gavin O'Connor. You know, my dad told me last night, he said that you got a full ride to Kansas. You just quit. Why? My father didn't like me very much. And then someone told him I was good at basketball. And he paid a lot more attention to me. And I realized it wasn't me that he loved. It was what I could do. I spent a lot of time hurting myself, trying to hurt my father. And I never picked up a basketball again. need a new coach, Jack. You're the first person I thought of. The team any good? No. <laughs> In fact, the last time they made the playoffs, back when you were playing. This whole team? Ten kids? You want to know why they're leaving you open? It's because they don't think you could hit the ocean from the beach. Oh, snap! Heard your coaching basketball. Keeps my mind off other things. You don't decide the game! The players decide the game! I understand you're trying to motivate the team, but we have a code of conduct. Oh, oh shit! I'm working on it. Work harder. So, The Way Back, not to be confused with The Way Way Back, which is the 2013 film starring Steve Carell and Sam Rockwell about water parks, or Back, the 2009 TV movie starring Skeet Ulrich about a man who, bear with me, He was thought to have died during 9-11 and is now back eight years later with no memory of where he's been. So apparently that's an actual film. Um, Not going to be reviewing that one, but maybe I should. Anyways, The Way Back was released in theaters on March 6th before being made available digitally on demand on March 24th. So unlike other films like Harley Quinn and The Invisible Man, you could actually purchase the film for $19.99 instead of just renting it. So the main question is, should you spend $19.99 to watch The Way Back? In short, yes. I really enjoyed this film, uh, you know, as I have enjoyed all of Gavin O'Connor's sports films. I, th- I think Ben Affleck delivers probably a career-best performance as an alcoholic who's coping with loss. Um, how much of that is acting versus how much of that is Ben Affleck, like, actually struggling with alcoholism? That's anyone's guess. But it's re- it's a really engaging and sympathetic performance. I mean, Affleck is still the beefy 6'4 dude who played Batman that one time, RIP, but he's put on a considerable amount of physical as well as emotional weight, which kind of makes him a little bit softer than he than we're used to seeing him. It's this layered performance that sort of mixes Affleck's natural, traditional masculinity with a more emotional, vulnerable side that we don't often get to see. But that often is the cornerstone of Gavin O'Connor's characters. The one small critique I'd make of Affleck's role is that it's sort of difficult to take him seriously as a former basketball star. He seems to know the game, and all of that is fine, but it's hard to see someone of Affleck's physicality being like a national-level recruit, even in his prime. But I mean, granted, I you know I don't really know basketball, and by don't really know, I mean I don't know basketball at all, so maybe I'm totally wrong. 
either way, that disconnect does not really end up mattering because like a lot of Gavin O'Connor's other films, The Way Back isn't so much about basketball as it is about the road to recovery and how sports can often play a key role in dealing with those complex emotions, especially for men. There's basketball in it for sure, but it isn't like the main focus or even the main point of the film. And I think therein lies what might be the biggest flaw of the film. It seems to be trying to do two things. It tries to be this feel-good sports film about a high school basketball team, but it's also trying to be an R-rated drama about the struggles of addiction. And those two things don't always blend all that well, primarily because the feel-good sports film almost feels like a distraction in the middle of the addiction drama. So what you get is you, you get this more or less complete arc of an underdog team doing this amazing run in the middle of their season, but it's bookended by this pretty difficult-to-watch alcoholism and grief-counseling film. And I do think that the sports film being in the middle and feeling like a distraction is kind of the point, because ultimately that's what Affleck's character is doing. He's using his coaching as a distraction from the actual healing and the actual therapy that he needs to get through this really difficult time in his life. And I think that's actually quite smart, and it's a bit subversive for the film to do that. But even if it is purposeful, it does still feel a bit narratively inconsistent, which can be a little unsatisfying. But if we look at the two pieces of the film separately, everything works pretty well. The sports story, it's captivating. I mean, personally, I'm a sucker for an underdog sports film. Not much else I can say about that. But hey, you know, I think the team has a handful of colorful and fun characters. It keeps the games interesting and that whole kind of story arc compelling. There's one of the kids on the team. He's played by Melvin Gregg, who also plays a basketball player in Steven Soderbergh's High Flying Bird and also in American Vandal Season 2. So I guess that guy's like super typecast as a basketball player. But just as a side note, I was doing research for this film and that kid doesn't have a Wikipedia page. I don't know why. It's very weird. He's like in a Steven Soderbergh film. I feel like he should definitely have a Wikipedia page. But anyways, uh, you know, the kids, including Melvin Gregg, who does not have a Wikipedia page, they're compelling enough. And what I think is really refreshing is that they act and speak like actual kids. And that's partially due to the film's R rating. So the kids can cuss and swear and stuff like all kids do. And I think that's something that's really often missing in these PG and PG-13 sports films. I don't think that the underdog story is particularly novel, but I am a firm believer in the idea that if you do something well, it doesn't necessarily have to be completely unique. Nevertheless, that does mean that you'll probably predict where the film is going and there won't be too many surprises thrown at you. I enjoyed the ride, but I wasn't necessarily blown away by it. But where the film does have some twists and turns is in Affleck's character's personal life and how that addiction drama unfolds. And I'm going to keep it vague to avoid spoilers, but I felt that the way Affleck is portrayed takes a surprising and pretty refreshing turn in a way that I wasn't expecting. Uh, and I think it's just another way that O'Connor kind of plays with Affleck's rugged exterior and like the idea that you think he's kind of this hardened dude, but inside he's actually a very vulnerable person. I just really think that it's great casting here. I think the drama about Affleck's struggling addiction, it's pretty well realized. Uh, you know, even if its connections to the sports film is a little lacking, I felt myself genuinely caring about Affleck and his struggles outside of just what it meant for the team and their success. And I think that is a hallmark of a good film and a good performance. So overall, I think it's pretty clear that I really enjoyed The Way Back. But it's also a film that I really gravitated towards. So just keep that in mind. You know, I like explorations of vulnerable masculinity, and I think that's something that O'Connor always does really well. And I also like a feel-good sports film. They just make me happy. And The Way Back has both of those, even if they don't gel perfectly together. So because of that, I'm going to give The Way Back a 7.5 out of 10. So this leads us back to the bottom line question. Should you spend $19.99 to watch The Way Back? I mean, I don't regret it. Well, actually, candidly, I didn't actually buy it. We used my girlfriend's parents' Amazon account, and they had purchased it. But I mean, like, at that point, it's just economics. Like, why would I buy it if I could watch it for free? It's a victimless crime. So, I mean, I definitely would have bought it. So, you know. But, I mean, 
anyways, on a, on a realistic level, this isn't necessarily a film that I like need to own. It's not one that I can see myself going back to again and again. Maybe I'd like to watch it again in a couple years or something like that, but it's not one of those ones that I feel like is a must have. So it does make $19, you know, almost $20 feel like a bit excessive to own the film. So if 1999 feels too steep, then, you know, maybe wait for a few months and rent it for a few dollars or catch it when it comes on HBO or HBO Max or or whatever we have then. Regardless, I think it is a great film that you should definitely check out and I would recommend it in some capacity. So with that, let's go ahead and take a quick break. Uh, when I come back, Tom Green from the Movies After Work podcast will be joining me to review Gavin O'Connor's other film, Warrior. All right, joining me now is Tom Green from the Movies After Work podcast. Tom, welcome back to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thank you for coming on. I think we've got a good movie to talk about, so this should be interesting. So let's just jump straight into it with a synopsis of Warrior. Uh, The synopsis is the youngest son of an alcoholic former boxer returns home, where he's trained by his father for competition in a mixed martial arts tournament a path that puts the fighter on a collision course with his estranged older brother. Warrior stars Joel Edgerton, Tom Hardy, and Nick Nolte. The film is written by Gavin O'Connor, Anthony Tambakis, and Cliff Dorfman, and of course is directed by Gavin O'Connor. Growing up, we all want to know the toughest kid in the neighborhood was, right? I want to know the toughest man on the planet is. That's what we're going to find out. It's me, Pop. What are you doing here? Tommy's back. Did he say if he wants to see me? I'm proud of you, Tommy. What you did for that kid in the tank. What was I supposed to do? Let him drown? Tommy Reardon, you saved my life. Look, Brendan, the bank has got to go by the new appraisal figures. You're upside down on your mortgage. How much do you need? I didn't come here for long, Frank. I was hoping that you would train me. Are you serious? Do it! We agreed that we weren't going to raise our children in a family where their father gets beat up for a living. Brendan, you're a teacher. You got no business in the ring with those animals. Actually, I used to be one of those animals. I just forgot to put that down on my application. All right, Tom. So there are a lot of sports movies, and there are a lot of sports movies specifically that are about boxing and wrestling, MMA, things like that. So what makes Warrior different than other ones? Uh, well, I... Uh... For me, I think the big thing is just the fact that I, I would say that the, the sports aspect of it is it's the connective tissue, but it's not what the movie is about, at least from my perspective. I, I felt like the movie, you know, it's, it's a family drama. It's, it's a movie about addiction and, and things of that nature. And it's all threaded together by this, this sport MMA. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it, and I completely agree. I I mean, one of the things I really do like about this film is the MMA fighting, and I think some of those fight scenes are just incredible to watch. Just the kind of physicality and the like raw physical sportsmanship of it all is just incredible to watch. But you're right, the film uses the MMA fighting as kind of almost a metaphor for what's actually going on between these two brothers. And I think that that is what's best about the film. I would agree. Have you seen any of O'Connor's other films? I saw the accountant, uh, way back when it, when it first released. Um, I, I remember chunk. I, I, I do remember chunks of it, but as, as a whole, they, I don't remember all the, 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 
all the like really specific details of the you know right <laughs> you know how the world worked, like what the conspiracy like, like how it works a lot of that stuff i don't remember too well but i remember a lot of the the chunks of it well in fairness it wasn't the most straightforward or well written out movie in my opinion so i think it's okay that it was you know you've lost exactly what went on in the film a couple yeah, of years down the road <laughs> But I think uh, so. Gavin O'Connor also did The Way Back, which I or I talked about briefly before you came onto the podcast. And he also did Miracle. And I feel like all all of those films have this kind of common thread of using sports as a way to talk about things that are more universal and things that are more emotional. And I think what's really interesting is that a lot of his characters are very masculine and you know stereotypically masculine. They're very brooding and big and hulking kind of like you know tom hardy and joel edgerton in this film and mma is a very stereotypically male and aggressive sport but behind that he's looking at these things that are very emotionally complex yeah it's it's very much um the mixture you know the the heavy testosterone mentality that is mma at at its face value, he he definitely uses that to, um, especially for for both of the brothers. How does it? How do they use use it to counter the their emo, You know their emotions and their their feelings and things like that. Yeah, and I think going into specifics would count as spoiler territory, so we'll leave it at that for now. But I, I guess actually, let's just step back a little bit and let me ask you in general: Does this film work for you? And I'm I'm assuming you like it because I very much love this film. But why don't I actually ask you first? Uh, what are your overall thoughts on the film? Um, I I did think it was a good movie. I I couldn't help, and I I won't go into it too much now just to avoid spoilers. But I I couldn't help feel like there was a, a better movie hidden on the side like if we had just made if there had just been a few alterations that we would have gotten a a stronger film okay i'm interested to know (laughs) what that is (laughs) um but before we jump into that let's just talk a little bit about the acting then so this feels very much like a film that has two main protagonists uh i think edgerton and hardy are both the the protagonists of the film which makes it sort of weird because you know that in the way that this film is set up, that only one of them can go on and win this, you know, $5 million prize or whatever it is that they're competing for. Did you have a specific person that you were rooting for? Or do you agree that it was more of a, a two-person protagonist story? I agree that it was a two-person protagonist film. Um, I I felt like the movie, I felt like the movie didn't realize that though. Mm. Again, avoiding spoilers i'll i'll discuss that later but i felt like because of um certain moments in the movie the movie itself kind of dictated where it thought the protagonist was not realizing that it had created multiple interesting yeah because of who they they because they definitely design an an antagonist to the film that that kind of causes it to to seem more lopsided instead of balanced for the protagonists i don't know i, I kind of disagree with that um just I, I felt that both edgerton and hardy i was i was rooting for both of them in, in very different ways and i think i know which one you perceived as the villain and i definitely you know i certainly see that so that'll be i i'm interested to hear what you have to say about that i keep saying that so maybe we should jump into spoilers really quickly but uh you know overall i think just from my perspective, this film is really good at getting that melodrama right without feeling like it's kind of cheap because a lot of those relationships between the characters, I feel, are very kind of cliche. You know, there's the estranged brother and the alcoholic father and all those things are things that we've seen in other movies, but it feels very natural, um, I think, because of the writing and because of the performances from both um, Edgerton and Hardy. Did you have like one um, performance that you preferred over the other or what were your thoughts on the performances in general? Well, I I definitely 100% agree that it is a movie that um, that lives on um, melodrama in a a sense. But I I would say 
above everything else the thing the 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 person i give the most credit for never letting it feel like a melodrama was nick nolte i mean his his oscar nomination for this movie was very very much deserved oh i didn't even know he got nominated for an oscar for this yes he got a supporting actor nomination awesome uh and and i think it was well deserved because i think he more than anyone else kept the film grounded and kept it honest Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't know. I, I think it's funny that his his character sometimes feels a little like a Jeff Bridges character in a way because he's sort of, you know, mumbly and and things like that. Or I think just in general, Nick Nolte kind of feels like a, uh, you know, discount <laughs> Jeff Bridges. But a little bit. Yeah. But I, I agree that he kind of I, I like that he has separate but believable relationships with both Edgerton and Hardy. And they're both negative in a a different way they're both kind of estranged to him and i understood both the relationship that he's trying to put forward as a newly reformed found god post-alcoholism kind of person but then also how it has individually affected the older brother played by edgerton and the younger brother played by tom hardy so i think that kind of trifecta of relationships is what really grounds this film as well I, i i would agree so are are there any other performances that you want to point out before we hop right in to spoilers? I really enjoyed uh Frank Grillo in yes. this film. <laughs> I thought I I mean he I don't know much about the guy that he he based his character off of, but o- overall in in his performance he was just he was fantastic. He was, you know, getting to see him in this compared to what we see normally from him from things like the the purge franchise and even um the second captain america movie you know it was really refreshing to get to see him do something that doesn't seem like it should have much weight to it and then he puts so much into it to just give such a strong performance yeah tom i kind of just asked that question so that like if you didn't bring up frank grillo i would bring up frank grillo <laughs> I, I just really wanted to talk about frank grillo in this because i agree i i love him in this and it's it's a very small role. I mean, he plays Joel Edgerton's coach, um, and he doesn't have too many scenes or anything like that. But all the scenes he does have, it's just like a wonderful piece of character acting. Like he has these things, and I I didn't know that he based his character off of some actual person, but that's believable because he has these ticks and these ways of talking, and he like a very soothing, compassionate character in a film that for the most part, kind of feels suffocated by how much testosterone there is because of the MMA aspect of it all. So it, it is very refreshing to see him in like a, a toned down and gentle role. And he's got this one line that he says to Joel Edgerton about, you know, this, the second to last fight in this film that just blew yep. me away. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that one hit. Yeah, so we'll we'll jump straight into spoilers then so that we can talk about that and some of the other things. But why don't you just <laughs> summarize your thoughts on this film and then give a score out of 10? Um I mean my my overall thought on this film is it is it is a very strong performance film that that elevates a script that's by no means bad, but I think never quite realizes what it has available to it leading to an ending that uh, dare i say even without marketing you you see coming in a way that lessens it to a certain extent so mm-hmm. for for me the film is you know probably a a 5.5 5 out of 10 wow man that's a bummer so that's that's is that low for you or is that about average or what do you think i'm just trying to get a gauge for out of 10 what that means uh, for me, that's that's average. For me, that that's um, for me that's you know what the movie gets right. It gets right. It really gets right. Mm-hmm. But um, the the things that you know when something is missing, you can feel that it's missing. Like you 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 feel its absence. You feel that a component of the film that should be there isn't there. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, I I I agree with with that for the most part. I do think that there's a few side plots in this film that aren't fully realized and as a result don't really add anything to the film that makes it feel a little disjointed at parts and I think that some of the writing is a little bit on the nose and especially as you say at the ending 
there's a line that's a little it's a little too cliche uh given everything else that's come before it so and that ending is something that you do see coming i i think this is very much a underdog sports movie so there's a lot of those concessions that just kind of go with the property that you sort of have to be like oh, okay whatever but i do think i i'm much more positive on the film than you and it'll be interesting to see what specific problems you have with it um but i would re- i would definitely recommend the film and i'm I'm going to give it an 8.5 out of 10. So quite a bit higher. Uh, Tom, do you think that this is a film that you would still recommend? Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyone, anyone that I know that's into sports movies or, um, you know, grounded yet gritty family dramas or is any, anyone that likes films that this fits into the mold of, I would absolutely recommend it to them. It's by no means unwatchable. It was still, you know, it, I, I intended to watch half of it, go to bed and then get up and then finish the movie. And instead I watched the whole thing. So by <laughs> no, you know, I, I chose to stay up later than I meant to, to finish the movie. So it's by no means unwatchable. It's, but yeah, anyone that likes this kind of stuff, I, I would say they absolutely should see this. Awesome. Yeah. And so the warrior is, or not the warrior, isn't it just warrior? Warrior is available on Hulu for anybody who is interested and has Hulu, I guess. Sometimes I forget that not everybody has Hulu. All right. (laughs) Well, let's uh, let's move into spoilers now. I'm going to say this is your spoiler warning for Warrior starting now. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. All right, Tom. So, I mean, I I just want to start off with that first line that I, I think you and you and I both know what I'm talking about. It's the line when he is, uh, Frank Grillo is talking to Brendan, who is Joel Edgerton's character, and he has to face the kind of big bad of the film or whatever. It's the the really imposing, scary Russian fighter who comes to America for the first time and is fighting. And he says, look, man, it's the third round. You need to pin this guy. You don't pin him. You don't have a home. Oh man, my my heart the first time I just heard that I just went holy shit. Like that is that it's amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a kick in the gut to be sure. Uh yeah, okay. Let's let's talk a little bit about I'll give the floor to you. What what are some of the those stories within a story that you think are are better than what we actually get? And I'm curious to are you talking specifically about Tom Hardy being kind of the villain of the story here? See, I no, I for me, the thing is, is that we build up the Russian. So to me, the Russian is the antagonist that we're building up in this movie. Mm-hmm. So it got to the point where we got to the whole Sparta event. And I just kept thinking, okay, whichever brother it is that fights him, that's who this movie views as the main protagonist, because he's going up against the antagonist of the film. Mm. Like that's, that was, that was how I felt like the movie. That's what I felt like the movie was telling me. So it felt like then as a result, Tom Hardy was a secondary protagonist. But at that point, it really felt like it was about uh, Joel Edgerton and, and about his character and about his journey. So do you think the uh, the dual protagonists would have worked better if they didn't have the Russian character in it? No, I think the I think the dual protagonists would have worked better if and this also would have helped with the ending if they fought each other. Because, I mean, you had to have them fight each other. It would Mm -hmm. have been ridiculous if they didn't. (laughs) Um, But it would have been more interesting, in my opinion, if we had them fight each other in the penultimate fight. Mm. And then, you know, we go with Joel Edgerton beats him and, you you know, he beats Tom Hardy. And so he ends up fighting him. And then you have Tom Hardy, who's been avoiding the spotlight, trying to stay out of eye shot. And he then kind of teams up with Frank Grillo's character to to coach him for that final fight, kind of playing a little bit of what I felt like we hinted at in the movie of he and his, you know, it felt the whole like him and his father are, you know, here's the tree, here's the apple. It didn't fall that far from it sort of thing. To me, that would have been an interesting dichotomy, even with only 15, you know, 15, 20 minutes left in the movie to explore. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so it seemed like 
Tom Hardy, or it was almost like the Russian instead of being kind of the main antagonist was he was like the mini boss that Joel Edgerton had to fight. And then uh, Tom Hardy got his mini boss who was much less, you know, important of a mini boss because he just got the shit beat out of him. But that guy who was talking all this game about Tom Hardy's character that he was going to crush him and it was a fluke when he beat him at the gym and all that stuff. But I mean, I, I kind of like how the ultimate fight is between these two brothers because I think it kind of more or less matches the uh, the emotional turmoil that's kind of, as you say, the the main focus of the film. Because it, I mean, to me, it seems like Tom Hardy's character is this kind of just this um, like physical manifestation of rage and anger. And he's, you know, he's just fighting. He's fighting his whole life. He He ran away and now... He's fighting and, you know, he fights in the war. He's fighting in the cage. And when he ultimately taps out, that's him kind of ending the fight and letting Joel Edgerton's character kind of like take him under his wing and walk, walk them away. And I, I really like that ending shot because it sort of makes it show that the the brothers have become one together. Yeah, I can. I can agree with that. I I guess for me the the moment the the biggest gut punch punch moment in the movie for me like the the moment that literally had me sitting there like deep breathe exercises to keep myself from from starting to tear up real bad <laughs> was when um nick nolte sees his granddaughters mm. and just that like tonal shift in him and it was for me at that point it was when i that was when i realized i really wanted the movie to be about him about Nick Nolte's character. Yeah, like we're watching him. Uh, you know, he's got the son that is turning into him with Tom Hardy. And he's got the son that isn't necessarily turning into him. But he also doesn't, you know, he's not really going to be a part of his life. And just to kind of like, because the, there were the some of the the you know one of my other favorite moments in the movie is when you get that he's congratulating edgerton's character as edgerton's coming out of the ring and edgerton's telling him like i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it okay and he was just like okay like even though he's there to coach his other son he's just like all right and he's just so happy for him yeah <laughs> Cause it almost feels like if we had made him the main character, that sort of dueling protagonist of who do you root for Hardy or Edgerton, we could kind of experience through him as the audience. Mm, yeah. Which would have been really fun. And so to have him and then to have him miss out on so much of the end of the movie, it, it, it just, it made the whole, like that whole ending. I'm just saying they're going, I, I need to know how he feels. I need to, I need to know what he's experiencing, what he's thinking. It was almost like we forgot about him. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point about kind of allowing the audience to like, if we, if we made him the main character, made him kind of the central uh, perspective of the film, then we could see that tension of, Oh geez, which brother do we want to win? It's kind of a lose, lose, but also a win, win, regardless of who wins. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's interesting that you say that you didn't like that he was kind of out of the, the resolution of the film, because that's one of the parts that I did like that, um, the, the father this whole time was kind of trying to, to mend this thing. And at the very end, to me, he realizes that the, the best thing for me to do is like, you know, I'm just going to let these guys be there for each other. And they, this is, it's like the first time that the older brother, Joel Edgerton is finally, coming back and taking care of the younger brother. And I'm interested to know what you think about this. Maybe a huge reach, but um, I know you are a father and I am not a father, but I am a brother and I am an older brother. So it maybe I'm kind of looking at this film from the, the brother perspective, whereas you're relating to the father character. Is that a reach or what do you think about that? No, I, I think that's a, I think it's a fair, um, the fair reality of, of how perspectives are going. <laughs> and the thing is, I didn't like to be clear. I didn't necessarily need him to be there, be there. I didn't need him like his arm around the two of them as they exited with them. I was, I agree him letting them mend their relationship with, without him. I, I absolutely am fine with, mm. but 
it still would have been nice to experience him experiencing all of that more. Like I see. Yeah. Like I sat there during the whole, um, you know, we don't see him. Like we, we do so much with the big fight against the Russian. It's all, you know, it's big, it's epic. And we get why Tom Hardy, we're not getting what's going on with Tom Hardy during that. We've shown enough times now. He's not going to be watching T you know, he's not going to be watching. He's not going to be paying attention. He's blissfully unaware of what's going on um, in any fight that's not his. But to not have, like, Nolte sobering up in the hotel room and seeing him experiencing it as well, that, like, it just felt like something was missing. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment, too. Um, While we're on the Nick Nolte character, I'm just curious what you thought about the whole captain ahab and him listening to that moby dick on the audio tape and him kind of having that breakdown when he finds out what i presume is the end of moby dick i haven't ever read moby dick but there's that very kind of intense scene where he's seems to be sort of mentally breaking down and yelling at the the cassette and tom hardy has to um you know kind of take care of him do you, do you do you know what's happening in that scene? I, w- I think I was honestly was a little lost there. So the way I kind of took that was that the what had driven him to drink was not um, the story of of Moby Dick. Um, I've never read the book. My my dad, who used to be an English teacher, it was always he always jokingly dared people to read it because he knew nobody nobody was going to in his <laughs> English classes. But I mean, like. The, the story which most people at this point know the 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 broad concept of it, it you know it is very appropriately allegorical uh, um and and a good metaphor for the film um but what i what i viewed his breakdown as my my kid's a toddler so i haven't really i don't really have anything to to get this from yet but i have experienced and talk to other fathers who have had this. And it's that the, the father's guilt mm-hmm. of when the what's happened in your children's lives just suddenly hits you like a ton of bricks. Mm-hmm. And depending on your mental state can result in you blaming yourself. Mm-hmm. So to me, he basically was falling. You know, it was him blaming himself for for everything that tom hardy had gone through what what he like you know he was so excited and so proud of what his son had done in the war he was a war hero is so great and then his son tells him the truth and instead of being mad at his son he blames himself because he essentially taught his son to run yeah and that makes that makes a lot of sense you know i think honestly uh, maybe i was like looking at my phone for like a half second or something i don't think i ever really realized that he was drinking in that scene is it explicit it's probably really explicit well the it's not like it's not bash you over the head with it but we do show that the bottle that tom hardy takes from him and sets down we do show that it says whiskey oh okay yeah so i just completely missed that part so i think that's why i was a little confused I was like is this guy mentally unstable or what is going on that makes a lot of sense Thank you for clearing that up for me. That's just that's just a huge lapse on my part. This is why you should not watch movies at home. You should always go to the theaters because you can't be distracted by things. But it's it's harder to be distracted when you're in the theater. That is true. Yeah. Um okay, so is there anything else you want to talk about for this one? Um while I love Kevin Dunn, I <laughs> Yeah. Didn't necessarily resent the school stuff, but it annoyed me. I didn't because I I didn't buy that we would go straight to suspension without pay for participating in one fight. Yeah, I didn't buy that. I I could see a warning or some you know something something bigger, especially like suspension without pay without him really getting to like sit in front of a you know a, a school board to debate it it was just kind of hard for me to swallow but then the um the the stuff of kevin dunn at home watching the fights i kept laughing which <laughs> was clearly the point um 
it was it was great stuff but the student body at the drive-in while a cute bit it felt it felt so much like it was living dangerously on the fence of this is how we want you guys to be, be reacting so we're gonna have them be doing that just to kind of cue you guys <laughs> yeah that's that's fair i think it's one of those things that Maybe it's just for editing purposes or whatever, but there always needs to be like cuts away from the fight, which I do in general think is like not that interesting. Like I think some of the best fights on screen, like um, the one in Creed, that's basically a one shot where you are just seeing the whole fight from start to finish. I think that stuff's a lot more interesting, but maybe it's just to have that sort of like, oh, we need to cut away. And maybe that's just a really charitable read of it. I don't know. You're probably right that it's a little like, let's show the audience how they're supposed to feel. And it does certainly feel like a, one of those, you know, underdog sports cliche kind of things that Mm -hmm. there's people back home rooting for him and stuff like that. So I agree. It's, it's a little, um, it's a little cheesy for sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm not familiar with how they handled the, the cinematography for, the fight sequences so i don't know if i don't know if it was necessary for them to do cuts because of how they were filming it or how they had choreographed the fighting or what necessarily all went into it but yeah just for me there were moments like i i spent the whole rest of the movie from that the the argument between edgerton and nolte they have that whole argument where we find out there's like a restraining order and I spend the rest of the movie going, what What was the restraining order for? I got to know what that was for. Like, that's got to be such a, like, tell about what emotionally is going on with his family. Mm-hmm. And then we never find out why he has a restraining order against him. Yeah. Well, it's certainly the film is a lot more interested in the results of the past as opposed to, like, what actually happened in the past. Yeah. And I, and I, I get that. I just, I guess for myself if you're going to present something as strong as characters putting restraining orders against other characters, I, 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 I just want to know why. <laughs> yeah. Especially when I'm becoming, you know, I was rooting for the Nick Nolte character. You know, I was worried that we were going to get the, you know, I was worried that we were going to get him, pa- you know, dying before the, before the final fight or something like that. You know, I was mm-hmm. rooting for him to, to stay sober, to stay healthy, even if he can't repair the relationships with his sons to at least have, you know, the the mental health of knowing that he's doing what he can to be a better person himself. And hopefully someday his kids will, will, will give him the chances that he, that he's trying to earn. Um, You know, I was rooting for him on all those levels. So to have bits of the story missing bummed me out. So do you think that the film does not redeem him by the end or like does not kind of give him that success because I think that Joel Edgerton even just like acknowledging him at the fight is kind of showing that that relationship can is in the process of being mended I mean he's he's never going to be 100% re, you know redeemed right. or or better by the end of the movie and I, I certainly felt even with um, him falling off the wagon for a moment, uh, you know, I still felt like it was there to, to feel satisfied that we hadn't left him to like question mark what his future is going to be. You know, I feel like he's going to be fine. He's going to continue to be a friend of John W and he's going to, you know, continue to do all of these things. But I guess I just wanted a little bit more backstory to to kind of get the full weight of the resolve. Yeah, fair enough. Well, so, I mean, I think that makes it a little clear why we're probably, I, I guess I just didn't, you know, I didn't care as much about the Nick Nolte character. So I think that maybe that's where the uh, the discrepancy in the scores and the overall feelings for the film are. But I do think that we both overall thought that it was... Um, good and there were definitely some things that needed to be you know improved upon yeah okay so let's move on to our point two section where we talk about some of the other stuff we've been watching so tom i you know we have a lot of time now what have you been watching (laughs) um well the other night uh wife and i 
sat down and finally watched the live action remake of Dumbo. Okay. What are your thoughts on that one? Even though it's completely counter, like, even though it's complete opposite of what I was talking about with this movie, I felt like it would have been a stronger movie without the Colin Farrell father character. <laughs> um, Dude, you're all, you're all over the place. <laughs> I know I'm all over. The, sometimes I want him front and center. Sometimes I just want him gone. Um, but for me, there was such a great ensemble in that film that constantly wasn't getting to do anything because we were giving it all to Colin Farrell. I mean, beyond that, it's a, it's a perfectly fine film. I do think Tim Burton was the the right person to give that movie to because of films like big fish. I, I just would have liked to have seen that. What was clearly a strong ensemble cast get to, mm. to do more and get to shine a little bit more throughout the movie. Yeah. So I was one of the like six people that saw this movie in theaters and I don't know, man, it's, it's a weird movie. I think everything that works in the film is almost intrinsically because baby Dumbo is just really cute. And so there's only so much that you can do to like not make you want to root for a little baby elephant with big ears and big CGI eyes. Like it's a very, very (laughs) cute animal. Um, But it, it feels like one of those Disney live action movies that's like just sort of going through the motions in the sense that like, yes, they brought Tim Burton on, but then it almost felt like they tied a hand behind his back and they didn't let him be Tim Burton. It's like, it's almost like they got like a Tim Burton copycat to make a movie that is like, yeah, that sort of feels like Tim Burton, but it doesn't have that thing that makes Tim Burton so interesting. No, I get that. Um, well, I think, I mean, part of that is I, I read that the costume, it was either the costume or the production designer made a rule right out the gate of no black or white vertical stripes <laughs> um, to avoid that Tim Burton trope. Yeah. But also, like, if, you, if we look at his, w- with the exception of when he gets yanked back into Disney, his his career for the past few years, he's kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, he's kind of abandoned his um, his tropes to a certain extent. Big Eyes is not really a, a Tim Burton looking film on the scale that we're necessarily used to. Um, I constantly forget that the Miss Pettigrew's Home for Peculiar Children was directed by Tim Burton. Yeah, um, he's kind of leaving he's he's leaving it behind to a certain extent which film when you've got some filmmakers that are doubling down on their visual styles no matter what it's it's kind of nice to see someone go you know what i'm gonna i I, i'm not just gonna do what everyone thinks i'm gonna do with with what they're gonna see on screen so i i find it a little refreshing personally yeah so i mean i guess it just feels like It would be one thing for, I mean, okay, I I haven't seen Miss Peregrine's or Big Eyes, so I'm not going to knock those films, but specifically in Dumbo, it feels like he's not so much taking his style and tone and replacing it with another one. It's almost like he's just kind of watercoloring with some diluted paint, his style and tone, if that makes sense. Like, like to me, there there are things that feel Tim Burton-y, but it just feels like Disney is sort of just it's almost a marvel vacation of these live action disney properties that makes me wonder like if you want all of them to just kind of look like these muted sort of things why are you hiring these directors like tim burton who are known for having this amazing style well see i think i think part of it is i i honestly don't think that disney has yet figured out how they want to do these live yeah. action reeks and partially because I mean, part of it is they need to stop going, let's take some of our most popular and do live action versions of them. They need to be going, let's take some of these ones that aren't as well known or aren't as well received if we're going to do this and do those ones where we can take risks, we can go out there, we can hire somebody, let them do whatever they want and and see what happens. Yeah. I still... I'm waiting for them to realize 
20 years too late that they could have competed with Lord of the Rings by taking um, and doing a live action remake of the Black Cauldron, but <laughs> doing all five of the books in that series and doing them where they're actually adapting the books instead of butchering them. <laughs> you know, doing doing ones like that makes a lot more sense than you know taking movies like lion king and beauty and the beast where we're just putting a new cast in in the roles and then regurgitating the same movie or you know movies like jungle book where we're just kind of doing whatever as long as we broad stroke it right you know i still i i still to this day think that the only live action disney remake that they've really nailed was cinderella have you seen Pete's Dragon? I saw bits and pieces when they were watching it the uh, the other day in the living room. Um, I, it's never been one that I've I've veered towards just because my my wife started watching the original with our with our daughter the other day, and I remembered how much I don't like it, the original. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've never seen the original, but um, I do really like the the live action one. I think it's a pretty sweet film. And maybe that is just because I, since I don't know what the original one's about, maybe there's nothing to compare it to. So I'm just like, oh, this is a good story about a dragon that's fluffy. Who knows? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the the original one is so weird because it's it's from that era where kids' movies were 60% jokes for adults. Hmm. Like the 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 original Pete's Dragon starts with starts with the villains of the movie singing a song about all the different ways that they're going to maim torture and hopefully fingers crossed kill the small boy that is our hero in the movie <laughs> and it's a jaunty song it, it like it is way too happy <laughs> for being a song about torturing and, and trying to kill a little boy <laughs> but it's it's how we start our movie oh the 60s Yes. What a time. <laughs> so, so where would you put Dumbo in kind of like your ranking of all the live action ones that you've seen so far? Uh, of the ones I've seen so far, you know, it's not walk out of the theater level of that Jungle Book was, but it's, it's not quite, um, it's not quite Cinderella. Mm -hmm. It's probably not photo finish, but it's probably behind Cinderella. You know, okay. it's got, some things that work about it, they they figure out how to kind of exist in a world where animals aren't talking. Again, it just we a great ensemble is just kind of wasted in the film. Yeah. So that's Dumbo. That's the live action one from 2019. And that is streaming on Disney Plus, right? Yes. All right. So I also watched a children's movie yesterday. Uh <laughs> I checked out for the first time ever, Paddington. Oh, that's right. Yep. Yeah. And so I know from how you responded to my announcement that I'm watching Paddington that <laughs> you love Paddington. Yes. It's a fantastic film. <laughs> yeah. So you can watch it on IMDb TV. That's how we watched it. Um, it's like IMDb has this random app that's on things and sometimes they have free movies and most of them are bad, but Paddington is one of them for like at least this week. And so this is a film about a talking bear from Peru uh, and he like ends up in London and he's looking for a home. And I, I mean, I, you know, this is clearly a kid's film, but I agree with you. I think it's just a delightful and just adorably cute film. And that's because Paddington is like the embodiment of wholesomeness. Like everything about him is yeah. he, he doesn't have a mean bone in his body, not just because he's a bear. Well, no, he's not a stuffed bear, is he? He's a real bear. So he's got bones. Yeah. 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 Okay. But anyways, he doesn't have an evil bone in his body. And I think that's funny because like there's not too much conflict in this movie. A lot of it is very light and fluffy, but there is a little bit of conflict. Like sometimes people get mad at Paddington and every time that happens, like it's almost unbearable to, <laughs> to like feel that. I'm just like, no, please don't be mean to Paddington. Can we just watch him <laughs> be silly for 90 minutes and like... <laughs> Nothing bad should happen to Paddington. <laughs> it's, I mean, the movie itself, I, I mentioned, um, cause it's on my, my top 100. And, and so I mentioned when I was doing that series, I went into that movie 
kind of feeling bad for Nicole Kidman, who plays the (laughs) the villain of the movie, kind of feeling bad for her because I was like, "Eh, it's a kid's movie and you're playing the villain. It's probably, you know, this is probably not going to be your your shining moment. And I came out of that movie really jealous for how much fun she got to have in that movie, which was a, a great surprise. Yeah, I like that she basically just gets to make fun of Tom Cruise for a little while in certain scenes. Like she does this Mission Impossible stuff that was probably fun. But yeah, I I was, I mean, I can't think of another movie where she's been this silly. Can you? No, I really can't think of of anything. I mean, even even with the Bewitched movie that she made, she Mm. doesn't really do a lot of comedy. She pretty much leaves it all to, to Will Ferrell in that movie and doesn't really get to have a lot of fun herself. Yeah, but she's having a ton of fun here. She's like, she's like kind of a darkly, like a pretty dark villain for a kid's movie. She's a taxidermist who wants to kill and stuff Paddington and put her in a museum. So like, it's it's kind of scary uh, for a kid's film, but y- you know, she's doing that thing that all the villains in this movie do where they're just like kind of kooky and stuff like that. And I think, I mean, uh, that makes the film very fun. I was going to say, she follows my, my kid's movie rule for villains, which is, the villain has to have an evil plan that it takes five seconds to just completely tear down. <laughs> Her whole thing is she hates Paddington because in searching for Paddington, it destroyed her father's reputation and whatnot. So she wants revenge on him. So her decision is to kill and stuff him instead of walking him into the explorers group and going look my dad was telling the truth (laughs) y'all can go to hell reinstate my family and my and my time like she could just walk him in there and have and have her life given back to her and instead she wants to kill him (laughs) i did not think about that at all that's yeah. Wow. I mean, there's a lot of those kind of moments in this film because it's just like, you know, it's one of those inconsequential things and like you could poke fun at it. Like, I think my favorite part about the film is that um, so they acknowledge that Paddington is a bear and he's a talking bear and they they acknowledge that that's not like a thing you see every day, but they only acknowledge it as being like mildly noteworthy. Yeah, you, you know, like everyone's always like they, the the way that I think about it is that everybody treats Paddington like when you see a miniature horse or something. It's not something that you see every day. So you're like, oh, cool, a miniature horse. And you might tell your friend about it or something. But I feel like a talking bear should be kind of life altering because it doesn't seem like people know that talking bears exist. But then they just sort of treat it him like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I see a talking bear every day three years it's it's whatever (laughs) it's it's just a weird like middle ground reaction to this talking bear i I don't know i think it's hilarious (laughs) i well i always love and i i love that kind of stuff when it's in kids movies because it adds to that sort of like believe in the unbelievable you know dream you know dream in the impossible sort of mentality um, when you by showing like, yeah, he doesn't think it's weird that there's a talking bear. Why do you keep bringing it up, kid? Like, <laughs> this is normal if you let it be normal. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the thing because I was actually working at a movie theater when when this movie came out and the thing I always explain that, that I would tell people is, you know, if you're from the States, Paddington is just one of those characters that you maybe had a book or two of when you were a kid mm-hmm. um or you never heard of him at all but if you're from from britain if you're if you're from england chances are this character means more to you than mickey mouse does to an american right to the point where um the the lead actor the the guy from downton abbey i'm totally spacing on his name but he's actually a brilliant comedic actor um he did not he declined this film a couple of times because he was scared that if he was in a a movie about Paddington that was bad that it would destroy his career because of how <laughs> beloved the character is. It's uh Hugh Bonneville. That's the yep. Yeah. 
Um, the the most underrated thing about this movie, though, is uh, the music. Um, hmm. East Street Lime, I think, is the name of the the band that's the cor- Greek chorus in this film, and I they're they're one of my favorite things about the whole movie. I think it's really fun to just see them pop up here and there, and it has that like whimsical yep. fairy tale feel to it that you don't really get in live action a lot. So that is really nice. The ending song, though, weirdly is like I mean, so you know, this is a film that's not nearly as deep as something like a Pixar film, but there is a read of this film that is kind of about like immigration and refugees and, you know, how London should be a diverse place for people of all sorts and all shapes and sizes and everything like that, uh, which it, it's cool. Um, but at the very end, they're kind of having, what did you call the name of the band? Uh, East Street Lime, I believe, is the name of the band. Uh, the fi- the end song is called uh, Jared Street. Yeah, so they're they're singing and they're saying like all these different ethnicities and things, and they use the word um, Chinaman in the song, which feels a bit. It, it just felt like a very weird racial slur to throw out in the middle. I I don't know if. If that's anyways, I don't know. But the music other than that one single line, which I only would have picked up because I was watching with subtitles. Um, other than that, it's it's a it's a really fun part of the um, film. I don't I, I don't think any of the music they're doing in the movie is necessarily original music. Um, I could be wrong about that, but I, I think a lot of them are like mm-hmm. uh, classic ska ragtimey sort of fusion things. Um, but it. I mean, you're, you, you definitely are right about the immigration thing. Cause, um, the, the story that Jim Broadbent tells Paddington is it's true. And it's the origin of the character of Paddington. That was where they, the guys who wrote Pat created Paddington. That was where the inspiration came from was kids that were shipped out of Nazi occupied areas right. and sent places by themselves for, to safety. Yeah. So yeah, being being a movie that that's telling a tale about uh, the positivity of of immigration is is definitely um, right on the money. Yeah, for sure. And like I said, it's it's a great film, so I would definitely recommend this one. And who knows, maybe tonight we'll watch Paddington Two, and I'll be back to report on Paddington Two, which I hear is like a masterpiece or something because it's got a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> the the last thing I will say um about paddington and it just because it was it was the moment that made me and nobody else in the theater laugh because it was mostly kids and i don't think everyone else got it but i'm i'm a huge monty python fan so at one point after paddington accidentally thwarts a burglary and does so <laughs> in a in a bobby hat they show a newspaper and if you look in the brief moment that it's on the screen on the side, it says it's a fur cop, which the it's a fair cop being the closing line for uh, on random occasions for Monty Python, seeing it's a fur cop show up on the newspaper gave me a big laugh. <laughs> yeah, I I didn't pick up on that, but that's great. <laughs> random, random stuff is is my my bread and butter. That's <laughs> No, if, if I had picked up on that, that would have been great. I I didn't really get it too. I was like, that's that's a weird reference, but I'm sure it played very well for everybody, like in the UK and stuff. <laughs> I would imagine, yeah. I would hope at least, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So this has been our review of Warrior. Tom, thank you again for joining me. Um, I plugged your podcast and your Twitter handle at the start of the episode, but why don't you just throw out your handle here and anything else that you'd like to plug? Uh, yep. Our Twitter handle is at movies work. Uh, so you can follow us on Twitter. It's usually myself that's ranting and rambling on there. So if you ever are wondering which one of us is saying the stuff on there, uh, it's me. Um, you can also find our podcast on most available streaming platforms like, uh, Spotify, Apple podcasts, and you can catch our most recent episode, which funnily enough is about another movie in this vein though not nearly of the quality it's uh we did hulk hogan film no holds barred um we had our friend uh juicy jackson 
who hosts the Fighting With Myself podcast, which <laughs> discusses MMA. So if MMA is your speed, hop on over and give us give a listen to us talking about a movie of much lesser quality than this one. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were referencing that it was like Warrior or if it was like Paddington. And oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Hulk Hogan, probably talking about Warrior, not so much Paddington. Hulk Hulk Hogan does wear some disturb like some painfully red items, much in the vein of of like a Paddington or, or a Winnie the Pooh. So sure, it all bleeds into each other. <laughs> awesome. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie M-A-R-A pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast on Podbean at MovieMarathoners.Podbean.com. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening. We hope you'll stay safe and join us again next time when I am joined by my friend Ian Anderson to celebrate the one-year anniversary of Avengers Endgame and also talk about the future of the MCU. So until then, bye. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.